This is an episode of The Politics Show, recorded on the 12th of October, 2012, for UPSU Radio. For more information about The Politics Show, or to listen again, go to www.thepoliticsshow.com. Let's get more on that top story, the Nobel Peace Prize being awarded to the European Union. Joining us live now from central London is the leader of the UK Independence Party, Nigel Farage. Mr Farage, welcome to BBC World News. So you've been phoning Jose Manuel Barroso to say congratulations, well done. I think the whole thing's a nonsense. I mean, if anybody... Hello and welcome to The Politics Show. In today's programme, sex, drugs and misogyny, the Cardiff Women's Association have lambasted the pimps and hoes fancy dress night as misogynistic and sexist. We discuss sexism at university and just why carnage doesn't feature on the Plymouth nightclub scene. You couldn't make it up. The 2012 Nobel Peace Prize has been awarded to the European Union for the organisation's long-standing role in promoting peace and reconciliation, much to the dismay of our Nigel Farage. And finally, from Russia with Love, we examine Turkish allegations um, of breaches to the Syrian arms embargo as an airliner is grounded during a flight from Moscow to Damascus. Swastikas being flown and Europe now being dominated by grief, violence and division. So you've completely omitted... Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Michael Turner and joining me in the studio is our usual panel, Bartosz and Ben, and our special guest, the President of the Students' Union, uh, Jazz Singh. Welcome to you all. Hello. Hello. OK, uh, we kick off with the papers today then. So, Bartosz, you've got the mirror? Uh, yeah, um, I do. And I did not really know what to say about that because uh, <laughs> apart from the uh, story that features on every single cover, uh, which is um, in regards to... Oh, I'm sorry, it's not on Ben's, in news, Ben's newspaper. <laughs> uh, he's going to get to that point. Uh, I would just like to say there's um, a big um, you know, like headline saying that seven Marines on murder rap. However, the newspaper fails to explain anything about that. On page nine, I turn to that, and they only say, oh, we can't talk about it. So right. uh, the fact is that maybe it's better to buy it tomorrow because you can get a £10 voucher for uh, local Morrisons. <laughs> so. OK, all right, that's very informative. Thanks, Bartosz. Uh, ben, what have you got? Uh, I've got the Daily Mail, um, and once again, to prove us correct, the uh, front page displays a picture of the Queen, so that's... That's, our normal in, that's in tune with our um, predictions yeah. about Daily Mail headlines. Our Good. thesis. Instead um, of having Savile on the front page, they have the Queen. Yeah. 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 Um, but the story that caught my eye was um, entitled The Scallop Wars. So the, um, the old enemy are back, according to the Daily Mail, as um, French fishing <laughs> boats attack British boats with rocks in a battle over, <laughs> sa- over shellfish. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Right, we'll keep fish jokes to ourselves then, sure. Uh, Jazz, you got The Sun. What? Yep, I got The Sun. It's probably my least favourite paper due to its uh, generally misogynistic content. Um, uh, the first, I suppose, the main headline is I blew the whistle on Savile, but BBC ignored me, so more in the allegations on Savile. Yep. Um, good to see it. that they've been taken seriously, even though he's dead, but maybe yeah. they could do more about people that are still alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, a bit about Prince Harry. Oh, good. Great stuff. Well, that's kind of keeping the theme as well, I suppose. And I've got The Guardian, uh, and, and obviously there is some news stories there about, um, about Jimmy Savile as well, um, but also about the Iraq abuse inquiries that feature um, um, in more detail, I must say, in The Guardian than in The Mirror, which Bartosz had. Um, uh, but yes, interesting read by Ian Cobain there, our um, whitewash claim over Iraq abuse inquiry. But um, we'll put them away for now and move on to our headline topic for today, which is sex, drugs and misogyny. 
Ben, can you fill in our listeners about what's been happening in Cardiff? Uh, well, the Cardiff Women's Association, which is an organisation at the uh, university, um, wrote a letter to uh, the organisers of the giant pub called Carnage, um, in or- asking them to change their proposed theme, which was uh, pimps and hoes, um, to something more, what they would consider more appropriate. Um, they got a strongly worded reply um, from Carnage, Carnage's organiser, Varsity mm. Leisure Group, um, basically refusing to do so and arguing that they had no right to uh, sort of try and make them change their theme because it had been voted for by uh, participants on their website. Um, so it was picked by sort of popular demand um, yeah. and that they claimed that it was nothing more than uh, fancy dress. Yeah, and there was okay. no underlying. Yeah, the exact words they used were, have you contacted Amazon or indeed any other retailer to suggest the same? So they were basically insinuating that anyone that sells um, any clothing that could be scantily clad is, is also supporting uh, pimps and hose thing. Um, Jazz, do we think that um, th- this type of fancy dress is misogynistic, first of all? Do we think that it's sexist? Yeah, certainly when it's come up in the Students' Union before, I think Oceana held that theme last year. Not on our part on nightclub night, we strongly kind of condemned... Um, the event. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Well, one thing that I've noticed, um, Varsity Leisure Group used some strong words in trying to uh, explain why they're doing uh, such a themed night, and they're saying that's normal, that, that they're allowed to uh, to go on with, with ideas such as that one. And they give this reasoning that they would like to include more people of uh, different ethnic and cultural backgrounds, which yeah. to me... Uh, reading uh, this sort of news is quite offensive because such a statement is completely out of order, especially if you want to include people of different ethnic and cultural backgrounds. Uh, creating a night which is pimps and hoes is just just offensive as 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 a theme night. Yeah, I mean, uh, do we think this apparently this night was uh, selected as the most the most popular? The reason why it was selected is because it was voted for by students. I mean, do we buy into the argument that um, this is consumer-led, um, uh, consumer-organised, if you like, this is what the public wants and therefore that's what they're going to have? Well, as politics students, if it's voted for, I think we should <laughs> probably uh, agree with it. Yeah, to, paradox. yeah <laughs> democracy in action right there. But it depends but, on who the voters are, I suppose. Right, and I suppose it's highly selective because, you know, people that are going to go to those sort of nights. But then, right, OK, do uh, w- you know, women can choose to be able to go to these events or not, can they not? So, uh, you know, should we be say, say to people, well, if you want to go to these events, that's fine, and if not, then that's also fine as well? Um. I'm, I'm going to just say one thing. I, I actually find that it might be quite problematic, especially if a night like that is organized on Freshers Week, because more students want to be involved right. in these nights, and they feel like, okay, this is the theme, and there's nothing I can do about it. So, and this is commonly accepted, yeah, the pressure into like it. Yeah, it's like the pressure, peer pressure, okay, let's do it, because it's already happening. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I've got some examples from other students, even students' unions host, hosting nights such as rappers and slappers, tarts and vickers, golf pros and tennis hoes, and so it's coming from students' golf unions Golf pros and tennis hoes? Uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't tennis. get that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but it, it's kind of absolutely ridiculous, and it's kind of giving men a humorous option yeah. and giving women this, they kind of have to come scantily clad. I mean, it's... It's ridiculous, and there is certain pressure, I suppose, mm. on freshers and women who want to get out there and meet people that if they want to fit in, they've got to dress up that way. So we're kind of imposing this on students, and right, I think okay. it's quite irresponsible. Um, 
so there was a Huffington Post article written by Lucy Sheriff, which has kind of like uh, propagated this uh, quite well, a lot, a lot further than Cardiff, let's say, um, at the moment. And so it's in the mainstream. And in her articles, uh, one of her articles, um, a question was asked about whether or not people had kind of, um, you know, experienced sexism at university or work. And 80% polled said that they had been either at university or at work or at both. So it's, we can say that potentially this is a, you know, a widespread problem. Um, but you know, people are still accepting. It. Are, are, are women just accepting this as part of everyday life, or is this something that they're just shouldering just to be able to kind of? I think it's become institutionalised. And um, I know you and I were talking uh, earlier about the fact that there's a fine line between something that could be considered harmless flirting and banter, to yeah. then crossing the line into what we what I've called bullying in inverted commas yeah i think speaking sorry, speaking as woman i think there's always this because sometimes it is um perceived as kind of banter or can be perceived as banter there's this kind of um i suppose you have reservations in terms of highlighting issues that you think and making a big deal out of something that someone would say is just a was just a casual remark a joke or a, mm. a comment and it wasn't wasn't a big deal to them but to you if it does mean something else there's always that fear of actually being able to to speak out about it. Yeah, but I think um, reading the second Huffington Post article uh, reporting on that, uh, the Cambridge student, the Cambridge student, yeah, yeah who'd, um, who'd kept a blog. I think some of those things, some of the things mentioned in there, did cross the line. Yeah, she was a barmaid. So yeah. this, this, the unnamed. Let's keep her unnamed. Uh, yeah. um, not that I know the name anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, but. Um, Cambridge student basically uh, worked in a bar and the, uh, the long and the short of it is that she had experienced um, kind of misogynistic, uh, sexist com- comments towards herself and also to um, her fellow uh, employees. And when she stepped in to try and do something about it, um, she was labelled as a... The problem is that you won't receive a lot of support in, exactly. a, in a place like this. And, and I, I looked at this article and I can pretty much say firsthand as well how it works in a business like this since to this day I'm sort of connected to an institution such as um, mm-hmm. is in question over there and the problem that we're, we're dealing with is the economic situation and, and pubs are struggling with getting enough money in so they're just happy to take anything on like if people uh, are drinking to a certain extent like there, there are certain laws that allow you to serve customers until a, cer- a certain moment when you see they're too drunk you don't yeah, have to serve yeah. them but nobody really cares about that I mean that's not how it works yeah. we have to be just honest about the fact that institutions such as well if should I call them institutions but big chain companies all they need is to meet a certain uh, numbers at the end of the week and post it and then later on compete with other pubs mm. and, and if you, do, you don't do well enough you're obviously not a good manager mm. and, and this is a, this, this ongoing problem and every bar is be- dealing with this and, and you know like if you don't work in a business like that you take it from like outside once you get into it you're just going to realise that it's, it's an ongoing problem that you cannot solve by just saying something about it uh, what, what, what are the implications then what do we think uh, does anyone get hurt from this I mean whether it's emotionally or physically I mean, for harassment is an ongoing problem over there in, in pubs like that. Yeah. On in every pub in Plymouth, you can uh, experience that on a serious Wednesday basis, pretty much. <laughs> uh, so, like nights out, and you can have it on the weekends. It's, yeah. it's just yeah. something that you're going to have to either put up with, or you're just going to quit and just find yourself a job at the library. Yeah. I mean, uh, do, do you? Uh, 
do companies like Vasty Leisure, for instance, then have like a duty to consider some of the more ethical implications of running a night like this? Then you know, if they were, um, you know, running other nights, for instance, that might that, that religious organisations might find, find offensive, you know, would they have to consider them? Is it because it's just women and they'll just you know lump it, like it or lump it? Is that okay? I guess the point is there's no one really that can hold them to account. I mean, obviously, they're getting customers, they're getting 2,000-odd people in Cardiff. Yeah. How can you tell but them that they obviously see that as a good business plan? Why would you tell me to do something otherwise? So, yeah, we can scream as much as we like about it, but the likelihood of them responding is very small because, you know, they've got their customers, they know that people are responding to that and people are voting for these events. Yeah. But you can help us a little bit about, about how navigating that process, but bypassing um, Vasty Leisure, for instance, and going straight to the pubs and clubs of Plymouth, for instance. You know, um, Carnage do not feature in Plymouth. Absolutely, yeah, they haven't done. We were approached, I think, in 2008, mm-hmm. and um, the president at the time, I think, was Darren Jones, and he spoke to a lot of um, club and pub owners in yeah. town, and um, they were talking about the pub crawl, and it was, I think it was voted in, like, the citywide like their publicans meeting that they would not um have varsity feature in any of their um venues and um we've kind of got very strong direction from oceana who's the biggest club and that's the only place that they could end up having the kind of after party for carnage Mm -hmm. and um they've all decided that no we will not have varsity and we actually we don't have any kind of um um, pub crawls in Plymouth anyway that's, that's kind of like a citywide agreement that we don't have okay. um, mass pub, pub crawls um, for, for, for loads of reasons um, most of all because it promotes irresponsible drinking it's extremely bad for our community relations um, and obviously they, they're a highly irresponsible company that seem to promote all these really yeah. degrading themes so, ok well that's yeah. quite interesting it's like, it seems to be a, a more of a civic approach like local businesses kind of coming together and saying ok we'll, we'll accept that we won't run these nights may, perhaps at the expense um, you know, of, of, our, of the industry I mean do nights like this ultimately you know, change the bank balance for big companies I mean should companies, you know, run nights like this because you know because it helps them, helps the business, helps jobs, etc. It's a difficult argument, isn't it, to convince a business to drop a night like this? Well, yeah, I think this is why we're in quite a unique and fortunate position in Plymouth. That we're quite a small city that doesn't have very many large pubs and clubs. Mm. We've also got a students' union that dominate the student market. So essentially, we can influence where students go, and we will not set partner agreements with nightclubs who don't behave in a certain way because yeah. we've got loads of policies and stuff in place and so we then have a bigger say in terms of what they can do so if they sign up to Varsity we say well you don't get our partner nightclub contracts for the rest of the year yeah, yeah. and that costs them money so we're, we're in that position where we can yeah. um, kind of influence them and actually give them a better alternative to having something like Carnage because we can give them something every yeah. week of the year Surely then um, these cities such as Leeds, Nottingham, Swansea who have equally as large uh, student populations as what we do, surely that their student unions should be doing similar things. They should be... Yeah, but because they're bigger cities, they've got more venues and bigger nightclubs and all of that kind of stuff, so it kind of comes with the territory of being in a larger city. Um, The students' union don't have that much control over the kind of nighttime and economy, as they they call it. And they also don't have to communicate with students' students' unions as much as over here in Plymouth, where it's more important to to influence that students' uh, population. Yeah. yeah. I, d- I don't think many students' unions do support Carnage, but I think of the ones that do, how a little can be said. Okay, and um, <laughs> before we leave this topic then, um, 
can we can, can we sum this up then? You know, the barmaid that kind of gets you know um, eyed up and offered one and stuff, and the, you know carnage and uh, uh, kind of coming over and taking over cities and encouraging kind of like young women to to dress scantily clad out and night out. How do we change ingrained attitudes then towards um, towards women? How do we get this through to young women and, and men that's not acceptable? Well, I wrote down earlier that for as long as it's not reported and for, long as, for as long as things like this continue to go under the radar, should we say, then they're, they're going to continue. But I also think, there's a, like I said, there's a very fine line between when you go out for a drink, it is a social occasion and you do want a little bit more um, sort of interaction with the people that you're there with, be it the people that you go with or mm. the people behind the bar. We're not robots when we go out for a drink. We don't want literally can have a drink that's it but like I said there is a fine line and if it crosses that line it needs to be reported otherwise things are going to continue okay all right then that's great I guess we'll leave it there and move on to our next topic okay um it's European Union has won the Nobel Peace Prize it was awarded this morning um uh, much to the anger of uh, Nigel Farage as we've just heard at the beginning of the show um Ben can you fill in our listeners about um well why they've been awarded it oh well from reading the articles that outlined it, um, there was three reasons why the Nobel Prize Committee uh, in Norway awarded it to the European Union, and mm. these were uh, um, democracy, human rights. human rights, and peace and reconciliation. These were the things that apparently the European Union has uh, managed to spread throughout Europe. So um, the article that I read said that it bound Germany and France together, uh, ending their somewhat usual uh, fractious relationship. Um, It spread democracy to the three uh, dictatorships which fell in the 1980s in Greece, Spain and Portugal, um, and somewhat uh, controversially claimed that it did a very good job in the aftermath of the conflict in the Balkans, which I have to agree it did, with Croatia joining next year, Slovenia have already joined, uh, Montenegro, uh, Macedonia are very close to acceding to the European Union as well. Um, But I would say, in terms of the Balkans, it did a very poor job actually dealing with the issue when it arose in the first place. Okay, Bartosz? Okay, so... Let me begin. <laughs> Patiently waiting. I do not know where to start with that. I, I have to say that European Union should have received that award a long time ago. Right. I agree with Ben on the aspect of failure in the what we call the Balkans, which is not the greatest term to descri- describe former Yugoslavia. Yeah. I wrote my master's on the subject, okay. and I believe that uh, I'm trying to at least claim that I know a little bit about the region. Yeah. And yes, it was a failure, and I argued that within my uh, my thesis as well. Yes. However, I have to say that. Um, I think putting the Balkans aside, I know it's, it's a horrible thing to say, other countries within the European Union had a, a significant impulse coming from the European Union to democratize, to allow minorities to take part within the life of the communities, of the states. And we can observe that in countries such as Poland, we can observe that in countries such as Czech Republic, Slovakia. And uh, I think we have to think about Nobel Peace Prize as something that doesn't give an, 
an um, an award for overall achievement. Okay, because we we can think of uh, 2009, I think it was Barack Obama got uh, got given the Nobel Peace Prize as well. But yeah. Nigel Farage, uh, he's obviously taken a stand because he's a he's a nationalist. He's <laughs> he's looking at it from a perspective of just Great Britain. Yeah. Okay. He doesn't uh, think about Eastern <coughs> approach and where con in countries where there are more nations within a state than just in Britain, where yes. people all are considered as a nation. Uh, so we, we have to understand that, that we're dealing with a completely different situation in Central slash Eastern Europe. Yep. Uh, and, um, so, so, Balkans, you, so you aren't in agreement with Nigel Farage when he says uh, that this goes to show that Norwegians really not, do have a sense of Not at all. I, I think what, is, what might be seen as problematic, sorry, that's the last thing I want to say, it might be pro seen as problematic is the fact that this award was given at a time which we're dealing right now with uh, the European Union in crisis, especially due to, uh, to failing Euro. So I can understand that it, it might seem as a bit funny. It might be just something to, uh, for European Union to give this encouragement and, and make them believe that we can, we can work together. But I, I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. On the back of a Ryder Cup victory as well. Oh, oh that's pro that probably good, sealed it, didn't it? Yeah. All things are yeah. looking uh, good uh, for uh, Europe. Who's going to pick up this? Is Manuel Brasser going to pick it up? Van Rompuy is going to pick it up? Ryder's Cup? Or, well, or are they going to have all 27 <laughs> head of governments go and collect it? Yeah, all at the same time. Angela yeah. Merkel, I mean, she's bankrolled this, hasn't she? Still Ryder's Cup? <laughs> no, no, but in all, in all yeah. seriousness... Oli Zabel should go and collect. <laughs> <laughs> in all seriousness, though, um, there is a bit of an issue here about this because it is a bit, a bit unusual, then, for instance, for an organisation, let's, let's say, the size of the European Union, for instance, to, to be awarded such a prize. Let's give ourselves a round of applause. And, and, what, and <laughs> what we've got to remember is that uh, the European Union's been awarded it when really a lot of, from what I can gather, the work that was done to win this was actually not nothing to do with the European Union. Right. It was pre-92, so it was before the Maastricht Treaty founded the European Union. So this was the work of the ECSC, the EEC, and the EC. And the EC. Yeah. yeah, but I think that um, we're talking here about the European... Uh, before Idea. European inter integration of Central and Eastern Europe. And I think by allowing accession in the future, or foreseen future, yeah. a foreseeable future, of countries uh, of former Eastern Bloc and giving them an opportunity to work within this greater framework to be able to uh, find the same language. Yeah. Uh, I know it's still a process. We cannot deal with that within one generation, but there is much to achieve and much has been achieved. Uh, Euro project, I put it aside because I think it was a failure. It could be still maybe saved. I'm not going to get into this, but yes. I think I European think Union... I think you can separate the Euro... Yeah, from yeah, the yeah. EU, which I think is a fair thing. To yeah, do. and yeah. they have explicitly kind of commented on it. Yeah, yeah, so so that's why I don't think it's a joke, and I don't think it's uh, Norwegians having a good sense of humor. Yeah, I think it is a, a good timing because European Union deserved it a long time ago. Okay, all right then. Well, um, I guess we should move on from that topic and move on to our international focus of the week, which is this week the conflict in Syria is escalating once more uh, as the uh, a plane from Moscow to Damascus has been intercepted uh, by the Turks and landed in Ankara and some what they claim to be munitions have been taken off uh, of the plane uh, and now it's been sent on its way. Um, Bartosz, what, um, how do we think this changes, at, if, if at all? Well, um, I, don't, I didn't know I was going to be an opener for this question, but I can say something because I've been uh, closely watching um, the development of this, of this problem, uh, which it is obviously a yeah, problem. Yeah. I can't say anything uh, any other way. 
and uh, for safety reasons, even if there were no munici munitions on the plane, yeah. I think uh, Turkey was allowed to take that uh, airliner yeah. because if that was to be shot down, uh, yeah, yeah. then it would have been a greater crisis between uh, Turkey and Russia. Okay. Uh, I think it's um, it, there are military actions going on between Turkey and Syria, yes. and, and I know Russia could be upset, but they would have been more upset if that plane was shut down. Yeah. Uh, obviously, there's an embargo, arms embargo on Syria at the moment now. But there's also international regulations which would disagree with what Bartosz just said, yeah. which is this flight was going from Russia to Syria, not over, uh, Turkish, airspace. Not over Turkish airspace, so therefore they had no right to intercept the plane is in breach of right. Okay, do we really think that they have no right to be able to intercept a plane that could potentially affect, um, you know, what's going on and on the Turkish-Syrian border? I, I just, uh, well, from what I've read, there are um, jet fighters yes. on yeah, the they've border. They've yeah. just moved the Turkey this morning. Moved and to if there are, and there's, there's a military operation ongoing at the moment. Yes. Uh, and with such potential threat to... Um, and I'm, I'm going to seriously move aside the whole thing with munitions, okay. threat yeah. to uh, civilians. Uh, I think Turkey was in a right position to allow this plane land in Ankara. It's not like these people were put into prison for anything. No, it's not like no. they were accused of anything. Uh, maybe their travel plans have been sort of uh, not considered in the okay. whole situation, yeah. but it's better to be safe than sorry later on. Yeah, Turkey have a um, vested interest as well because there's been reported somewhere between... Um, two and five thousand Syrian refugees that have fled across the border mm. into yeah. Turkey. So their their own uh, national security is obviously under threat as refugees um, cross the border. Uh, it was reported in Syria that 210 people activists were killed yesterday, and that uh, the Assad regime uh, are following a systematic policy of demolishing uh, what they claim to be illegally built houses. Um, which happen to belong to opposition forces in Damascus as they uh, try to keep hold of what would be the central city. Okay, lose okay. Damascus, just, they're going to lose. Just one thing uh, I would like—I would like to say as a, as a final thought on this uh, conflict going on at the moment. Like mm. I, I, what I what I didn't have a chance, and it's not really li related to that airliner. Mm, no. I just think that uh, what happened there was one of the things that could have been like the worst possible outcomes for Syria. That's one thing. That's one thing that you cannot do when you're, ha when you're ha going through a civil war in your own country. And you cannot attack a NATO member. No. Because with attack on NATO member, we're dealing with a problem that is going to escalate to all NATO members. Yes. Yeah. So every single country is now allowed to get involved in that crisis. So if uh, Turkey, well, sorry, now Ben probably knows a lot more about that, but Turkey, Turkey is not... Uh, but an attack penalized. on one NATO nation is an attack on all NATO nations. So, so, yeah, but yeah. It, it's whether or not it was an act of aggression. Yeah, and but well, citizens. It's of a bit difficult if we. It's a bit difficult to claim that a, a mortar landing, uh, you know, in your own territory is not an act of aggression, even if it wasn't. Do you agree? Or if civilians have been killed in Turkey, then. Yeah. Um, I know Ben's specialist on that one. I, I from yeah. my my own perspective, if civilians of your own country are, are uh, being killed on, your, on their own soil, mm -hmm. in their own country, yeah. by mortar that allegedly came from Syria, then the country has a, has a right to step up. And I would believe that if, ha if it happened to any other NATO member, uh, we would expect to see a, a similar act of, of unity with them. Yeah. 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 Um, is this trying to uh, actually get the international community to actually do something with 
um, the Syrian situation yeah. as well. well we, know for, we know at the moment that the main impediment to any action, international action, that is, has been from China and from Russia specifically. Now, let's uh, assume, for instance, that, that the claims against Russia... Uh, breaking the embargo on uh, 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 on arms trade with of Syria um, are true. Um, what does this do? How does this change the game? Does this change the put the focus on Russia now to to it, change it, change change their their block? It, it puts uh, another. It, it sort of starts another problem over here because we have a country that is a permanent member of Security Council uh, being involved yeah. in. Uh, sending weapons to a country that is going through a conflict. And we know that, Sir well, we not all know, but there is a time between Syria and Russia where they have been actual best allies. I mean, Syria, Syria was always a bastion of Russian interest in the Middle, uh, Middle East. So we have to understand that they will not just simply let, let go of it. And Vladimir Putin knows mm -hmm. that because mm -hmm. if he lets it go, then he's going to have, have to start thinking about Dagestan and Chechnya. Yes. Yeah, yeah uh, he's there. Russia aren't going to change their foreign policy towards Syria, uh, especially in the light of the trade agreement signed today between the British and Bahrain. Um, Russia are really worried about losing influence in the Middle East, which is obviously a strategic, uh, strategically important place. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you could observe that a few months ago when they started sh sending ships for training, and that's an inverted commas yeah, over yeah, here, yeah. training to the Mediterranean. Um, because the, the reason why we're talking about this is because Russia still has military bases in Syria. Mm. And there is a, a big shipping, um, well, military base uh, on the Mediterranean coast. So yeah. we have to just start looking at different aspects of this whole conflict and start putting pins uh, and, you know, linking them together. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll be keeping a close eye on the conflict also and uh, bring you some news on those in the coming weeks. Uh, with that, I guess we'll have to leave it there. I'll say thank you to our special guest, to Jazz Singh, uh, to the usual panel, to Bartosz and to Ben. Don't forget you can listen to all of our shows and read our articles and blog posts at www.thepoliticsshow.com. That's Polly with a Y. My name is Michael Turner. Thanks for listening. More on that top story, the Nobel Peace Prize being awarded to the European Union. Joining us live now from central Young, London is the leader of the UK Independence Party, Nigel Farage. Mr Farage, welcome to BBC World News. So you've been phoning Jose Manuel Barroso to say congratulations, well done. I think the whole thing's a nonsense. I mean, if anyone's seriously suggesting that a democratic, stable, post-war Germany would have invaded France again with the intention of smashing it to smithereens, um, I would suggest they're misreading history. Um, I don't believe there was any prospect of war happening in Western Europe after 1945. Um, and arguably, uh, projects that take different nation-states, force them together under a new identity, a new flag and a new anthem, if they do it without the consent of the peoples, far from creating peace, this can actually create war, as Yugoslavia has showed us. So I'm baffled by this prize, as I think the viewers will be, because the last big European story was Angela Merkel going to Athens, and there we saw swastikas being flown, and Europe now being dominated by grief, violence and division. So you've completely omitted or you've forgotten what the Cold War was about then? Yes, the Cold War was about NATO. NATO and the nuclear deterrent. The fact, we had, the fact the Russians didn't invade us had absolutely nothing to do with the European Union, which, after all, wasn't actually fully created until 1992. So you're saying the European Union now is not about freedom, it's not about law, it's not about human rights, it's not about reconciliation? 
It's about the destruction of nation-state democracy. Mr. Barroso was perfectly clear one month ago in Strasbourg, national democracy has to go, it has to be transferred up to a European level. And that is being done without consent. And far from making the peoples of Europe love each other, what has actually happened is the Eurozone has divided Europe north to south, and there are increasing, growing enmities and violence on the streets. We are headed in a very bad and, I think, dangerous direction. I was talking to Karl Bildt, former Swedish Prime Minister and Peace Envoy to the Balkans, just before we started this conversation. Can I suggest to you that he maybe knows a little bit more about peacemaking and peacekeeping in the context of the Balkans and Europe than perhaps you do as leader of UKIP? And he basically agreed with something I put to him, which was this, that yes, in times of extreme poverty, in times of 25% unemployment in countries like Spain and Greece, money does equate to peace and if you've got a country like Germany which is prepared to bail out the euro yes the demark in effect became the euro when the euro was introduced the exchange rate was exactly the same but peace does equate to throwing money at a problem in a moderated respectful way no 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 you can bail out Greece twice you can bail out Greece 20 times it doesn't take away from the fact that the nation that invented democracy had its democratically elected prime minister removed last year by the bully boys from Brussels is now in the hands of foreign bureaucrats and that the public are increasingly angry and I think we risk in Greece a country that may be headed towards violent revolution all of it caused because of this ridiculous project to attempt to abolish the nation-states of Europe. And I would say this to Karl Bildt, just look at the lessons of the Balkans. Look at this crackpot idea that we had in 1920 of abolishing individual nations and putting them together under a Yugoslavian flag. It led to disaster, and the EU, sadly, is making the same tragic mistake. So what was wrong when Winston Churchill said, if we lock people together in a fiscal pact, they won't fight each other, they won't kill each other? That basic principle was flawed? Uh, Churchill, of course, didn't want Britain ever to be a part of it, is the first thing to say. Uh, and secondly, you know, the, the experience of two world wars had been utterly crushing on that entire generation, and not just Churchill, Monet and other people look for a new solution. Unfortunately, you cannot lock people together, economically, fiscally or politically, without first seeking their consent. If they want to do it, that's fine. But all the evidence across Europe is that the peoples of Europe don't want to do it. And indeed, when the French and the Dutch rejected the EU constitution, I hoped very much that the project would reverse and we would go back to perhaps de Gaulle's vision of a Europe de patrie, but we're going rapidly in the other direction. And as I say, Europe, I grew up with a Europe that was split from east to west by the Berlin Wall. We're now living in a Europe that is split from north to south by a Eurozone project that was a misconception from the start and that is leading to social disaster in those Mediterranean countries. Nigel Farage, many thanks. Thank you. Joe Biden squaring off against Paul Ryan.